I, I remember when I became a father, if you're a father, no doubt you remember that same thing. Uh, you have the car carrier case, whatever it's called. You remember it? Lock it in. You're trying to figure out how to put all the buckles together and everything. And I remember carrying my daughter, Zoe. Candace is walking next to me and we're walking out of the hospital. And this weird thing happened when you walk out of the hospital. Nobody checks to see your license, your father's license. Isn't it weird? I mean, you have to get a license to fish in a river or a lake but you don't have to get a license to be a father, right? And so I just expected I would be, I knew it wasn't a thing, but I just expected that somebody would be checking to see I had been certified, that I had my ID, that I had passed the test, but no one checked. And all of a sudden you're walking out into the parking lot, realizing that you're responsible for this little one and, and good luck. I mean, obviously, we have mentors and family and support systems, just as we indicated here, but it's an incredibly vulnerable experience. Let me just say, like, nothing can replace a, a, a dad. Dads are so important. Some of you spiritual fathers, some of you biological fathers, you just need to know you play such a valuable role. I remember when I was young, uh, my dad taught me so many valuable lessons, but among them, uh, one is just the simple lesson of cutting away from yourself. When you're using a knife, whether it's in a kitchen or in the woods, you, you cut away from yourself. You don't cut towards yourself. It's funny that, that I would have to be taught that, right? It's like, seems so simple. But I remember every time I'm using a knife right now, I, I remember I hear my dad's voice in my ears. Brian, remember, cut away from yourself. Don't cut towards yourself. And I actually talked to him earlier. I was like, dad, did you remember, do you remember when you told me that? And he goes, I have no idea. Remember, you know, But it's left a mark in my mind. Fathers play such an important role in our lives. There's a study done by sociologists and psychologists talking about the learning environment that a father creates that is actually kind of unique to the learning environment that a father creates that's unique from the learning environment that a mother creates. Now, you could say that it's nurture or nature that, create, that makes the father create this unique learning environment, but in slightly risky activities, it's demonstrated that fathers are uniquely poised to help their children learn in those environments. You could say, and this is what the evidence says, it's, it's that the father is more willing to let the child experience risk. <laughs> to let the kid go into the deep end, to, to try to swim, or to, you know, to, to, to try to learn how to use a knife. The father is uniquely poised to allow the child to experience a measure of risk. And when a child fails in that controlled environment, there's things that are learned there that couldn't be learned elsewhere. The role of fathers is so important. But then there's this like other side to dads, right? Where like, like we look at like this on the screen, you think about like all the dads, if you can think about who are the dads you think of first, typically it isn't like this noble, strong dad. It's like a Homer Simpson or a Phil Dunphy from Modern Family, which is like, like the dunce dad that is the butt of all the jokes and not an example that we're to emulate or imitate at all. But, but like those are the most common dads that we can think of. And so culturally, you could say we have this tension of fatherhood where Fathers are incredibly important. Dads are incredibly important. But 
you know, we have, uh, we have images of fatherhood that aren't really res- are like representative of really like the best of dads. So there's this tension of fatherhood. So the question we have to ask is like, what then does it look like to have the heart of a father? If God is father, what does it look like for us to have that heart for our kids? We're going to be looking at that and learning from the life of David again. But before we jump into it, I want to make a slight disclaimer. This message is not just for biological dads. If you're a biological dad, it is certainly for you. There are things that I hope that you hear and you learn that that maybe reinforce things that you already learn uh, that are encouraging to you that you take home. But for some of us, as we're spiritual fathers, there's a kiddo, there's a person in our life that we're praying for and, and pouring into that we're not biologically connected to them, but we are spiritually connected to them. There will be things that for you to learn from this teaching. And for some of us that are, that are moms and we're learning, how do I love my, my husband, love him towards having the heart of a father? There might be things that you hear in this message that are helpful for you and for young women that are looking towards a marriage or dating. And how do you discern, does this guy, does this man have some of the marks of the heart of a true father? So this message really is just not for dads, it's for all of us. And we're looking at, like I said, the life of David. Now, we're going to be looking and kind of uh, summarizing a lot of 2 Samuel 13 all the way to 19, but I want to set the stage a little bit. You see, and maybe this is an encouragement to you. It's a slight encouragement to me. David was not a perfect father. In fact, early in David's life as a dad, in 2 Samuel 13, 14, we see that David messed up a number of times in his role as dad. He's not a perfect dad. Uh, And in fact, some of the challenges that happened in those chapters uh, gave birth to one of his sons, Absalom, not liking his dad very much. There was tension between David and Absalom. And to the point that Absalom started hanging out in front of the city gates when he got to be kind of a young adult, talking to people that came in, and he would say something like this, wouldn't it be good if you had somebody that represented you? Wouldn't it be good that, you know, it's like if you had somebody, like it was leading the nation that truly knew how you felt, you know, that, that you know, like was willing to kind of like cut taxes and raise social security, make sure that your pension never went away and that you lived happily for the rest of your life. Wouldn't that be great if somebody could ensure that for you? Well, I can. And in so doing, as he kind of subtly shared that, you know, that, that he could represent their interests if he was in a leadership position, what happened was is that he was subverting and conspiring against his dad, who was in that leadership position, who was the king of Israel. And so slowly, slowly, Absalom began to get more favor than David and get more of a following than David, to the point where David had to flee. And there was this crisis at the heart of the nation of Israel between those that were loyal to Absalom and those that were loyal to David. And there was battles that ensued to the point where in the end, Absalom actually fell and was lost in battle. Now, we pick up the story at that point when David hears the news. 
And what we hear when David hears the news, though he was not a perfect father, we do hear the heart of a father on display so clearly. And we hear the heart of the father expressed in this one phrase you could say is love was bigger than a role. Love was bigger than a role. Verse 33, 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, we read, the king was shaken. He's just heard the news of his lost son. The king was shaken. Now remember, this is not just a son, but it was an antagonist against him. He had sought to conspire and subvert and take his role. The king was shaken when he went up to the room over the gateway and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now, it's important to note that that David is a poet. If you've read any of the Psalms, you know he can put words together. He can make metaphors and connect verbs and nouns and adjectives and make something beautiful and pretty, use his words to uh, affect us in ways that we did not know that we could be affected. But here at this vulnerable moment, what do we find? He can't stop saying the same thing. My son, my son, my son, my son, my son. Robert Alter, a Hebrew scholar, looks at 2 Samuel chapter 18. And he notes that every time somebody goes up to David, uh, they refer to him not by his name, David, but as his role, king. King. Hey, king. Hey, king. Hey, king. Hey, king. Now, this is interesting because When you see David, when you see him talking to himself, when you see his actions described, you see not a king, but you see a father. And it's almost as if the narrative that's being described here, the story that's being told by the authors, and of course, inspired by the Spirit of God, is that it wants the reader to understand the tension at the heart of David, that everybody is looking to him as a king, but he is in that moment just a father. David has a love that goes beyond his role as a king towards just just being a father in that moment. Which is interesting because at that particular moment, people are looking to him as a king. It's a crisis in the nation. They're looking for him to occupy his role, to not leave his role. But because of what's happened in his home, he can't think of himself in other terms, but just dad but just a, 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 a dad that is wrestling with some powerful emotions. This is an important thing for all of us. As dads, and certainly moms as well, but dads in some very unique ways oftentimes feel attention at the, at the heart of who we are between the roles that we occupy. What will be the primary role that we occupy and that we identify with? I remember years ago, a friend of mine who was being interviewed And the people interviewing him for the role said, uh, you know, we'd like to hire you. He said, well, one thing you need to know before you give me the job offer is this, is that I'm planning on being a pretty adequate employee. I'll be a good employee because I want to be a great dad and a great husband. My priority will always be my relationship to my family. And you just need to know that I'm never going to put my family on the altar of my work and sacrificing there. 
What he was doing there, saying, is that he's saying with David that my role, my role is subservient to the love I have for my kiddos. And this is expressing the heart of a father. I remember before uh, my wife and I and our family left to plant Anchor, we had many conversations about how it would look and what it would look like. And my wife, Candace, is more introverted. I'm more extroverted to a fault, you could say. And uh, in one of our conversations, she said, Brian, I think we can do this. I think we can take all of the the social weight of planting a church and do all, I think we can do this. I think God's calling us to do it. But here's some things that would need to happen if we do it. I was all ears. We have to have a regular date night. I was like, love eating, game, done. Love you, love eating, it's simple. Math is simple. I have to take a Sabbath weekly, like more difficult. Okay, uh, yeah, okay, okay. Family night, every Friday night, pizza, movie, couch, just family. Let me tell you this, is that the best moments in our family's life over the last four years have been moments when we integrated those things into our week. And some of the most challenging moments in the last four years of our life have been when I told Candace, hey, I think I gotta take this meeting. I know it means this. And the challenge that happened in those moments. What was being expressed? What was Candace asking me in that moment? Ryan, I need you to have your role, your vocation, your job be subservient to your fatherhood, to your role as husband. David, in this moment, in this very crucial moment, showed that he had a love that was stronger, that was stronger than just a role. You know, sometimes, honestly, it's not the vocation that is the challenge, the role that competes with our heart of a father in the home. Sometimes it's not the job place, it's not the workplace, but sometimes it's the cultural script of what it looks like to be a dad. The Greater Good Foundation at UC Berkeley, not a Christian organization, but still sharing an interesting insight into the world, writes this. They said, as children get older and roles more clearly defined, many men accept the cultural script that their children will be closer to their mothers and they will become more distant. The result is that dads stay the course, confining themselves to a box with sturdy walls and no exit. It's as if there's this cultural script given to dad saying, yeah, kind of be a little emotionally reserved. But let me tell you, the heart of a father breaks down that box and pours love, gives strength and hugs and shares intimate, encouraging words in the ears of our kiddos and just meets that place and and does not let a cultural script of a distant father keep us from expressing the intimacy that our kids need. The first aspect is of being a, having the heart of a father is having a love that was bigger than a role. And the second is a love bigger than pain. You know, David was in an incredibly painful situation where he saw his son start to compete for his role and position himself in an antagonistic position with regard to him, to, with regard to David. That's an incredibly painful situation to see your son act in that way towards you. And when you're fleeing from your son, essentially, that is incredibly painful. 
But the interesting thing is, at a certain moment where David could have taken advantage and, and, exer- and exercised his decision in anger and say, yeah, take control, you know, like, get rid of, get, you know, just, just end it. Like, we need to end the situation. Our nation needs more peace, you know, so just, just out, take away the threat. In that moment, he actually sent his commanders, instead of taking, saying, neutralize the threat of my son Absalom, he said, protect him. Now, throughout the chapter, uh, throughout the couple chapters, it's in 2 Samuel uh, 15 to 17. What we see David continually doing with reference to his son Absalom is referring to him as the boy. Now, many see this as David maintaining a level of intimacy even in the face of his son being the source of so much pain. Tell me, he's always asking those that go out and report and give insight back. He's, tell me about the boy, Absalom. How's the boy, Absalom, doing? How's the lad? How's my kid? What's happening is he has a love that is going past the pain he feels. Can I just let us, like, just let us into something? Parenthood in general is, pain is connected to parenthood. It just is. There's at least three ways that I can think of. And the, the first way maybe some of you have experienced is, is, is the pain of, of grieving the changing seasons. Recently, uh, my son Soren and I, we were walking to school. He had just recently turned eight. And he informed me as I reached out for his hand, he, he said, Dad, I'm eight. We don't hold hands anymore. And instantly I'm like, I mean, I never thought I was going to be want to, want to be the dad that continued to hold hand all the way up until, you know, him being a teenager. I never really thought I was going to be the dad, but I am. So I might still keep grabbing for that hand, you know. But what, what's expressed there, he's like, hey, the, you know, dad, I'm kind of, I'm growing up a little bit. Now, at some of those marks in time where our kids are transitioning into this next stage, oftentimes we can feel it as parents as a little bit painful. Kids in the room, be nice to us. Be nice to us. It can be painful because we still remember you when you were in diapers. So at those stages, it's like, oh my gosh, wow. I have to celebrate the fact that you're growing into this next stage, but also internally maybe grieve a little bit that you're not that kid that just reaches out your hand for me anymore. There's a little bit of pain there. But the challenge is, is if we don't allow that pain, to, if we don't experience that and, and, and celebrate our kid moving to the next stage, we'll keep treating the kid like they're in the previous stage, even as they're trying to grow, go forward. So we have to experience a little bit of that pain and champion them as they're moving forward. And then there's the pain of parenthood where, you know, it's the unexplained tension where our kids walk in the, in the, in the house, they're kind of sulking, like, and we ask, what's going on? They don't know how to articulate it. They don't quite know how to explain what they're feeling inside. And, and, and so they don't, they, well, nothing, nothing. They go into the next room and we want nothing more as parents than to be there, hear their stories, listen to what's going on, maybe pray for them, but they don't have the words to express. And there's this gulf between their experience and our experience. And we want to bridge that as much as we can, but it is challenging and there's pain there. And sometimes there's the pain of the, not just the unexplained tension, but the explained tension, the known tension, where somebody hasn't said sorry yet. And we're kind of like waiting for someone to say sorry. Sometimes it's us, right? Sometimes it's the parent. But all of this is like, there's a part of of pain in that. And here's 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 the thing that we see with David is that David, though he's experienced lots of that stuff, 
doesn't refrain from offering love. Here's the secret. Underneath pain is often love. We wouldn't experience pain unless there was an intimate emotion connecting us with that person. If there wasn't, then we wouldn't, we just, it wouldn't matter. But because there's intimate, uh, intimacy connected with kiddos, we, we feel pain when there's, when there's something that breaks that intimacy. So underneath the pain is always love. So we have to allow the love to move beyond the pain. And that's what we get a glimpse of with David, with the heart of the father uh, expressed there at that challenging moment in his personal life. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the often crocheted verse that you get on your wedding, but it's really, it's a challenge for the Corinthians to understand what true love is. Paul says to the Corinthians, love is patient. The love of a father is patient. Love is kind. The love of a father is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love, the love of a father, does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Get this, it always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes, and it always perseveres. The next glimpse of uh, the heart of a father we see in David is a love that's bigger than success. Check this out. After David has been grieving the, the loss of, of Absalom, uh, Joab, his like lieutenant, his second in command, his, his guy, his trustworthy standby, comes up to him and says this. says in 2 Samuel 19, verses 6 and 7, You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us dead. Now, go out and encourage your men. Stern words. In the midst of the mil this military victory, in the midst of this national victory, where everybody is seeing kind of like a way forward beyond the tension that was ripping the nation apart, in the midst of this success, David, David still can't celebrate it because he has a father's heart. He has a love that's bigger than success. And when Joab rebukes him, his response is interesting. Now continue on in verse 7 and 8. It says, now go out and encourage the men. I swear by the Lord that if you do, don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth until now. Dang, second in command, I'm about to get fired. And in verse 8, we see David's response. He says, so the king got up and took a seat in the gateway. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't go out to the men. You can tell he's still processing. He can't celebrate. He can't call the men to action because his love is bigger than success and his son is lost and he can't have a success unless his son is there. You see the heart of the father on display. One, uh, one Hebrew scholar, a guy with the last name Fokelman says, Call, this calls up the image of a man beaten to a pulp who can barely stand and does only the minimum requested or expected of him. It's almost like a movie scene. He sulks in the gateway, doesn't get all the way to the men because he's, he's still thinking about his son. Now, this feels like something that might be hard to relate to, but it actually articulates reality. 
You see, there's this deceptive story, maybe you've heard it, that goes like this. He who dies with the most toys wins. Have you heard of it? Have you heard it? He who dies with the most toys wins. Now, I don't know anybody who actually lives, who believes that's like their motto, their life motto. Maybe you do, hopefully you don't. He who dies with the most toys wins. It's a phrase that we hear, but it's hard to actually find somebody that actually believes that and is like, yep, that's what I'm doing. But here's the challenge, is sometimes we implicitly believe that. And sometimes we might not say, yep, that's my life motto, but we still play according to the script. But here's the thing, the research and common experience agree with David, that you can have all the success in the world, but if it comes at the expense of your family, the story is a tragedy. Paul Sullivan uh, in the New York Times describes this uh, study that was done on comparing affluence to joy. And he says this, affluent Americans ages 25 to 65 were asked a series of questions about their attitudes towards wealth. About half of all respondents said the sacrifices they made to accumulate such wealth meant that they had spent less time with their friends and family. And that regret rose nearly two thirds for people at the higher end of the wealth range in the study. And more than half of the business owners felt it too, outpacing those who accumulated their wealth by working for someone else. You see, it's, we have to just name that this, this disproportionately affects fathers. As fathers are the, the majority people providing the income for their families. And so for dads, we just have to reckon with this as like, well, how do we define success? How do we define the win? Do we define the win according to accomplishments and achievements in this particular aspect of our life? Or do we define the win by how joyful and, and the life and, and the joy that's present in our home? Do we, like David, though it's in a challenging point of his life, have a love that is bigger than success? Worship team, you guys can come up at this point. And I'm, I'm, think, I'm thoughtful of the, of the fact that, or I'm mindful of the fact that at like this moment, like, okay, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we move towards embracing, uh, you know, the heart of a father? For some of us, we might just simply do that. Okay, I'm going to write those words down. I'm going to think about what it looks like to have a love that's bigger than a role, bigger than pain, and bigger than success. I'm going to reflect, God, I'm going to ask you, would you make that so in my heart? As you see the gaps between your, where, where, where you are at and where you know, this, the Father's heart is, you can pray, God, would you give me strength? Would you give me, would you give me your grace to move towards your vision of a Father? And let me just say, everyone has gaps between where they want to be and where God's inviting them to be. And God knows that, and he's not intimidated by that. That's why he answers that prayer. He gives strength. He gives grace. He meets us in our time of trouble and crowns us with love and compassion. For some of us, it might be as we look back towards our childhood and we see that there's things that maybe we need to forgive our dad for. And I love the quote by Desmond Tutu, where he says, there's no future without forgiveness. So to move forward, we actually have to forgive. For some of us, it might mean that we have to allow ourselves to be reparented in a way by a spiritual father as a part of the body of Christ. That's why we love groups, why we love anchor groups, why we love growth groups, why we have all those connect events, because we believe that the body of Christ is a powerful community to 
strengthen and and fill in the cracks and, and offer us love. And for all of us, every one of us, it doesn't matter if we're a dad, if we're a mom, if we're not a dad, not a mom, it doesn't matter. Every one of us is invited to accept the intimacy of God the Father. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, God is often not, is not often referred to as Father. But when Jesus steps onto the scene, he's continually saying, he's continually saying, tell God, call God Father. Pray to God like, call, call him Dad. This is how you pray. Our Father who is in heaven, this is how you pray. Relate to him like God, like a dad. And for many of us, many men especially, we relate to God at a distance. We might know the omnis, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, omni whatever, and those are true, but oftentimes we use concepts about God to treat God as if he is distant, but God wants us to know that he wants to be near to us. As it says in Romans and Galatians, Paul's saying, call him Abba, which just simply means dad or daddy. And the way to knowing God as the intimate father is by seeing what, what, what Jesus did on our behalf so that Jesus, the Son of God, might make sons and daughters of us all, of the Father. Where Jesus Christ had a love that was bigger than a role. He, he stepped down from his, his role as a part of the Trinity, the second person of the Trinity, and though he was fully God, he became fully man because his love was bigger than our mere role. Jesus had a love that was bigger than pain where he endured the common experiences of pain that we all feel but experienced so much more. We're on the cross. He bore all of our stuff to give us all of his stuff to bring us in close connection with the Father and remove any barriers that might separate us because his love was bigger than pain. And Jesus Christ had a love that was bigger than success. He denied himself earthly success by by enduring seeming victory on the cross so that we might be brought close and brought near to the Father heart of God. And when you understand that Jesus' love is like that and you can't do anything about it but know that it's aimed at you and receive it, then you can know God as a Father. And that's where transformation begins. And that's where grace happens. And that's where healing happens. So as we stand and sing this last song, I want to invite all of us to extend a hand as a symbolic gesture saying, God, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. I'm going to pray over us. Spirit of God, Spirit of God, come in this place. For those of us that feel an ache in our heart, come in this place. Spirit of God, bring Bring your healing touch. Help us to know you, your love. Help us to be aware of your power. We pray these things in the powerful name.